everyone to satsang. It's always a pleasure to welcome you to satsang because there's nothing greater than satsang. Satsang is the place where magic happens, where the shakti manifests, and where we get to know God. So welcome everyone. <clears throat> I'd like to begin my satsang by remembering uh, my great guru, Baba Muktananda, who always began by saying in Hindi, Sabko Varasanmane Ke Sat Adik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And that was the essentials of his message, to welcome people with love and respect and to find love and kindness for everyone, to see God in every person. The same divinity is in every person, from low to high, from east to west, from north to south, whatever they are, the, their essence is divinity. And he gave that teaching. And so in that spirit, I want to welcome you tonight. And um, the other day, uh, I saw a cartoon, actually it was yesterday's cartoon, in, my calendar from the New Yorker of New Yorker cartoons. And occasionally, there's a good one. And I thought this one was appropriate. Um, <clears throat> but you can judge. Here we see two ladies in a, a store, some kind of grocery store. And one is shopping with a shopping, uh, what do you call it, basket in her hand. and. The other, the other, the proprietors obviously asked, can I help you? And she says, yes, I do need help. Could you show me where the chocolate chips are and tell me everything's going to be okay? <laughs> so I very much like that because that's, you should remember that everything's going to be okay is what you always tell peculiars. If you have friends or family that's a peculiar, which means very emotional type, you tell them everything's going to be okay. And if you're peculiar, tell yourself everything's going to be okay. Because in the larger sense, it's true. So there. <clears throat> now, tonight, um, as you've heard already, uh, it's Navratri. What night of Navratri is this? So what, we've gone to, what is it, Saraswati? Oh, Lakshmi now. It's Lakshmi. Oh, of course. Perfect. <clears throat> but when we, we talk about Navratri, I always think, I, you know, because in these programs, I, I always draw on the teachings of the great beings, uh, who I'm a great promoter of the great beings. I think of them as the as the greatest resource of humanity. And it's very little known. We know the great football players, and we certainly know the great singers and actors, uh, but we don't know something much more valuable than any of them. Well, I think so. More valuable than any of them are the great beings, the great realizers, the sages, the saints, the realized beings of all traditions who've attained the ultimate. And in attaining the ultimate, they've done, they've, they've uh, achieved 
the real goal of life, which is to know the self, to know themselves, to know the self, and they stand as a beacon for us, as a possibility. It's a possibility way beyond the mundane. It's not the possibility that our teachers and our parents will tell us about, but it's the ultimate possibility of a human being to know the self, to know the divinity. Um, and so I always celebrate these great beings. When I discovered that they still alive in this day and age, when I, I used to think that, well, maybe they lived 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, but I, someone told me in, that they'd, he'd met some and that they existed. That was the moment when I decided I would go in search of a great being and go to India. And uh, it led very smoothly to finding my guru. So I celebrate them, and then when I think about Navratri, it easily springs to mind that Ramakrishna is the, uh, the right great being to celebrate on Navratri. Ramakrishna is, of all the great de devotees of the mother, of the goddess, uh, Ramakrishna is probably the most famous. And he was a tremendous worshiper of uh, Kali, Mother Kali, uh, Kali is a form of Durga, fierce form of the goddess. Perhaps some of you have met fierce forms of the goddess in your life. You may even be living with the fierce form of the goddess. And even the mildest form of the goddess becomes a fierce form of the goddess under certain conditions. And you want to make sure those conditions don't occur. <laughs> if you're very intelligent, you'll make sure of that. Uh, but anyway... Sri Ramakrishna was a great devotee. He's a 19th century sage from Bengal. And um, he was uh, a rural Brahmin. And he went to uh, Calcutta uh, to assist his brother as priests of a temple that was just opened on the banks of the Ganges there. Uh, and then his brother died and he took over. And he became the temple priest uh, Dakshineswar, and he became a great lover of Kaliman, and he used to worship the image of Kali in the temple there. Um, and he was a spiritual genius in every possible way, and he attained the ultimate. Uh, but thanks to uh, a particular devotee named uh, uh, Mahendranath Gupta, we have a tremendous account of what it's like day by day, daily, to, to be with Sri Ramakrishna. It's just as good as if we had a film account, but even better. And so he's written a book called The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, which accounts, which he tells his meetings with Ramakrishna and the satsangs he attended and what Ramakrishna was saying and the interplay there. And so I've been drawing on the, those we start at the beginning, um, <clears throat> and um, uh, even though this one's not directly about the goddess, whenever you talk about Ramakrishna, the goddess is very close at hand. Of course, Ramakrishna um, very famously, well, he never left India, barely left his room once he got to the Dakshineswar temple. Uh, however, his disciples, he had some young men who were very talented and brilliant, uh, and they took his teachings 
uh, around the world. And the most famous of them became Swami Vivekananda, um, who spoke in Chicago in 1893 and caused a stir there. And then he traveled in the West and uh, he wrote volumes, uh, a great, you know, great teacher in his own right. Then there was Swami Brahmananda, another one, um, another great being. There were lots of them that were highly realized uh, yogis. But Ramakrishna himself was a unique figure. <clears throat> so let's, let's go with, with, uh, with Mahendranath Gupta. He calls himself M in his book. I'll summarize where we got to last time. We want to look at the photos, yes. Thank you. Okay, this is Ram. Ramakrishna, there are only four images. That It's not like now where you, everybody has the phone out and there are 10,000 pictures of everything. Um, and also you post on Facebook what you had for lunch. And, uh, you know, if you took a walk somewhere, you show that. It's just like it's gone insane. Um, but Sri Ramakrishna, there are only four photographs known. And this is him in a deep state of meditation, deep samadhi. Um, next, what do we have, two of them? We're going to show two tonight. And here he is. Remember this one, because here he is uh, at satsang, probably chanting, some, singing some song, divine song, and going into uh, bhava samadhi, uh, a state of con higher consciousness where he loses all uh, awareness of the outer world and gets absorbed in the self, which you'll hear this happens uh, at this event that, that M goes to. There he is. He's being held up by one of his devotees so he doesn't fall over. And he's, uh, he's in the, showing these mudras uh, spontaneously and he's in some exalted state. Okay. <clears throat> So, uh, in, in the first uh, segment, in the last installment, uh, uh, Mahendranath Gupta, I'll call him M, M met Ramakrishna on a Sunday in 1882. And so the whole book only covers four years because Ramakrishna died in 1886. So he visited him only during that time. Mahendranath Gupta was a young teacher who was a married man who had a tremendous interest in spirituality. And a friend brought him to see Sri Ramakrishna, who lived, as I said, in a temple on the banks of the Ganges. When he saw Ramakrishna speaking to, his devotee, to the devotees, he was stunned. He felt that he was seeing an ancient, he was in an ancient place with an ancient sage. Never seen it before, never heard about it, but it was, and remarkable. I think in that moment he received Shaktipat, that he got awakened. Uh, Ramakrishna greeted him cordially, and M noticed that he went in and out of this state of ecstasy, that he'd be talking to him and suddenly he'd become kind of vacant, and then he'd come back and he'd go out and come back. Uh, he was very intrigued by all of this, and he went back to see Ramakrishna the very next day. <clears throat> and that day, Sri Ramakrishna asked him if he was married, and he told him he was married and he had children. 
And very humorously, Sri Ramakrishna is very disappointed by that. Uh, and, and M felt quite rebuked from that. Ramakrishna was thinking, you know, he could become a Swami and, and do the work, but he's already involved and so. And M felt like, oh, what did I do wrong? Uh, uh, then they had a big conversation. He got over it. Uh, he got a good conversation about the nature of God, whether God was formless or in form. because he had taken the modern view that God is without form. And Ramakrishna told them that the, the God in form, especially on Navratri, uh, God in form is quite valid. And both views are correct. That God with form is quite valid. Uh, and M felt burned by the whole thing. He felt, you know, he was corrected and, and didn't like it. And he saw that he shouldn't argue with Sri Ramakrishna also. And he tells us this was his first and last argument with Sri Ramakrishna. Arguing with the guru is a very interesting thing. I will say no more about that. <laughs> uh, so even though his ego had been burned, he still was deeply impressed by Ramakrishna. And um, we're still in the second visit. He's burning a little bit. It's the second visit. So now he asks Ramakrishna, Sir, how may we fix our mind on God? And this is a very good question because he's asking a question that relates to his sadhana, his spiritual practice. It's always very good if you meet a sage like that to ask them questions that relate to your personal growth, your, your development. And so Ramakrishna says, repeat God's name and sing his glories and keep holy company. And now and then, visit God's devotees and holy men. The mind cannot dwell on God if it is immersed day and night in worldliness, in worldly duties and responsibilities. <clears throat> it's most necessary to go into solitude now and then and think of God. So if you get too absorbed in, in getting and spending and the daily round of mundane stuff, you go very far away from the self. When he talks about God, you might say the inner self, the higher consciousness, the shakti. <clears throat> he says, to fix the mind on God is very difficult in the beginning unless one practices meditation in solitude. When a tree is young, it should be fenced all around, otherwise it may be destroyed by cattle. So at the beginning of practice, you have to protect it. To meditate, you should withdraw within yourself or retire to a secluded corner or to the forest and should always discriminate between the real and the unreal. God alone is real, the eternal substance. All else is unreal, that is, impermanent. By discriminating thus, one should keep one's focus on the eternal. And it's a, it's a certain language. It has to be, uh, it has to be a hermeneutic about it. It has to be uh, interpreted. And what he's saying is that uh, where our mind goes, so is our life. When we focus on mundane things, then we become mundane. 
we're just focused on money and, and, and material things, we become. But there is a higher purpose, a higher consciousness. In the ashram, we call it the shakti. So it's an actual experience. It's divinity. It's a higher, the higher truth. And so he's saying it's important that our mind just not be involved only in the mundane, but also we spend time contemplating the highest. And Baba said the same thing. And Baba would say, everyone should meditate daily. And in meditation, we move away from externals, and, you know, whatever we're doing in life. And Baba would be the first to say, do what you have to do in life. Do your duty. It doesn't mean running to a, a cave in the Himalayas. Do your duty, but also spend time focusing on the self, focusing on the, the higher truth. And meditation is a way of withdrawing into the forest in yourself and turning the mind away and, and getting in touch with something higher because that something higher is not in some seventh heaven, it's right within us. There's an energy, there's a joy, there's a love, there's a peace that's right within us if we can find it. And so meditation is turning within and finding that place. And that, doing that, you do that for a period every day, it nurtures your whole outer life. So this is what Ramakrishna is talking about. So M, now very humble, says, how should we live in the world? Because he's a worldly man, he's got a job, he's got a wife, he's got kids. So how should we do it? Ramakrishna says, do all your duties, but keep your mind on God. Live with all, with wife and children, father and mother, and serve them. Just like Lakshmi told uh, Vani, uh, serve people. What's the opposite of that? Serving yourself all the time. Mostly we take the attitude we're serving ourselves. What we're going to get, what we're going to lose. And we, we, we meditate on that all the time. It makes us very separate. But when we serve, when we give, it's much elevating. He says, treat them as if they were very dear to you, but know in your heart of hearts that they do not belong to you. So at the same time, serve them, but also practice detachment. And then Ramakrishna liked to give, like Bhagavan Nityananda, he liked to give metaphors from natural life and so on. So here we go, a whole bunch of them. The tortoise moves about in the water, but can you guess where her thoughts are? They're on the bank where her eggs are lying. So she's uh, got her eggs over there, she's moving around. Do all your duties in the world, but keep your mind on God. So be like the tortoise. You're doing your duties, but your mind is on the eggs, mind on the highest. <clears throat> if you enter the world without first cultivating love for God, you'll be entangled more and more. You know, listening to this, Baba's teaching is very simple. He would say, repeat the mantra as much as you can. When you repeat the mantra, you're thinking of God. You're thinking of the self. And so while you do your duty when it's appropriate, repeat the mantra, Om Namah Shivaya. And that puts you in touch with that. It makes it very simple. He goes on. You'll be overwhelmed 
so if you enter, you'll be overwhelmed with the world's dangers, its grief, its sorrows. And the more you think of worldly things, the more you'll be attached to them. You know, the Buddha had it right, at least this much. <laughs> he said there's old age, disease, and death. He discovered that. <clears throat> he discovered, after being shielded from it, if you don't have higher purpose in your life, if you don't have divinity in your life, if you don't have the self in your life, if you don't have the shakti in your life, then all you have to look forward to is old age, disease, and death. It comes to every one of us, and it's a pretty dreary prospect. But if you have a connection with something higher, then your whole life is transformed. And even when you become a very, very, very old man like me, life's not so bad. The body may ache, and it does, but always there's a higher connection. Now, if I didn't have that connection, it would be quite miserable. So. <laughs> and all you do is get older, too. I've discovered. For myself, I discovered that. <clears throat> then he says, here's another one. Jackfruit. What's a jackfruit? Do you know what a jackfruit is? Huh? What is it? Yeah, what's a what what else? Yellow fruit. Yellow fruit, yeah. Weird looking? Yeah, spiky. Spiky, spiky, that's the one. What's it called? Yeah. Anyway, he says he says You like this thing? Is it a Who said yummy? I like it. I love it. Love it? Do you just eat it as it is or do you cook it? Okay. Yeah, how big is it? Wow. Do we have it in Australia? Yes. Byron Bay. Byron Bay. Okay. This, this doesn't exactly win me to it, but anyway. He says, first rub your hands with oil, then break open the jackfruit. Otherwise, they'll be smeared with its sticky milk. <laughs> it's a metaphor, see? He says, first secure the oil of divine love, and then set your hands to the duties of the world. So, you know, the metaphor? <clears throat> Premji, you want to explain the metaphor? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> so just, so, so well, you think you're saying anything else. Okay, so, so just as when you open the jackfruit, you put oil on so you don't get all messed up. So you were thinking about food. Would you like some jackfruit? So <laughs> what? Thinking about breakfast? Oh. Okay. All right. All right. Anyway. So you have to, if you put the oil of, of remembrance of God, of the self, on your mind, then you can engage in the world and you won't get all gooey. <laughs> uh, 
says, first secure the oil of divine love, then set your hands to the duties of the world. But one must go into solitude to attain this divine love. To get butter from milk, you must let it set into a curd in a secluded spot. <clears throat> if it is too much disturbed, milk won't turn into curd. Next, you must put aside all other duties, sit in a quiet spot, and churn the curd. Only then do you get butter. Further, by meditating on God in solitude, the mind acquires knowledge, dispassion, and devotion. But the very same mind goes downward if it dwells in the world. So he's talking about the upward shift. We all know when we meditate and when we do Shiva process, the upward shift, the spanda principle, where we feel the vibration of joy, of divinity that uplifts the mind. And if we get too stuck in disease, old age, and death, we go into the downward shift, fear and, and depression and anxiety. And this has happened to us. So um, he's saying you have to go into solitude. Now, Baba didn't say you had to go into solitude, but he did say it was good to spend time with, in the ashram, good to spend time with the guru. That's why we have retreats. You come for a few days in retreat and does that. That's why we have satsang every week. So you come into this environment and you, you're refreshed in that, in that sense. <clears throat> in the world, he says, there's only one thought, desire and greed. <clears throat> the world is water and the mind milk. If you pour milk into water, they become one. It, you cannot find the pure milk anymore, but turn the milk into curd and turn it into butter. Then uh, when that butter is placed in water, it will float. So practice spiritual discipline in solitude and obtain the butter of knowledge and love. So the water, the world is water. If you want to float above it, you have to churn your mind and be established in the self. Even if you keep that butter in the water of the world, the two will not mix. The butter will float, he says. He loves these metaphors. <clears throat> and you know the, 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 the Paramahamsa. They say that the swan, this is uh, Hindu mythology, the swan can, if you pour milk into the water, it can take the, drink the milk and leave the water. And that's a symbol. I don't know how true it is. But um, uh, it's a symbol of discrimination because it's saying that it can take the divinity out of what's mundane. And that's how we have to live our life because there's plenty of divinity in life if we have the discrimination to find it. Every moment there's divinity. In every interaction, there can be divinity. But we usually blow it. We don't see it. We go the wrong way. So the swan, the Paramahansa, separates the milk from the water, separates the divinity, the upward shift from the downward shift. And it takes a lot of discrimination. That's what he means by discrimination. To see how to live your life in a way that the energy is uplifted rather than depressed. That's why we have so much depression in our culture. So much depression, it's the major, a major problem isn't it? 
Um, and that's because people live a life in such a way that their minds go downward. They don't know the, the skill of life enhancement, of making their, their minds move upward. He says, together with this, you must practice discrimination. Worldly, ma worldly matters are impermanent. God is the only eternal substance. What does man get with money, food, clothes, and a dwelling place? Uh, what does man get with money, food, clothes, and a dwelling place? Nothing more. You cannot realize God by money. Therefore, money can never be the goal of life. Money is not the goal of life. That is the process of discrimination. You understand? That's how you think. <clears throat> so discrimination is to be able to see your true self-interest from your the opposite. To, to distinguish what's good for you in an inner sense and what's bad for you and to walk that path. What, what do I mean by what's good? That which uplifts you. That which brings you in touch with your inner peace, your inner joy, your inner love. You learn how to move there and you learn not to go down the path that brings you down. So that's real discrimination. <clears throat> Question. When, um, M says, I'm going to have to just end with the end of the second visit because I'm going on so much. So M asked him, is it possible to see God? He says to him. Sri Ramakrishna, yes, certainly. Living in solitude now and then, repeating God's name and singing his glories and discriminating between the real and the unreal, these are the means to employ to see him. So in our terms, what would it be? <clears throat> Using the mantra, meditating every day, coming to satsang, coming to intensives, doing shiva process, these are all the means. And following the upward shift, following the signs of God in your life. <clears throat> M, under what conditions does one see God? Sri Ramakrishna, this is interesting now. If you have an intensely yearning heart, you will certainly see him. People shed a whole jug of tears for wife and children. They swim in tears for money. But who weeps for God? <clears throat> cry to him with a real cry. So it's really about what Nasargadatta would call earnestness. The real desire, mumakshutta, the desire for, to know the truth, to know the self. He says, longing is like the rosy dawn. After the dawn, out comes the sun. Longing is followed by the vision of God. If you long for it, if you cherish it, if you value it, then it will come. God reveals himself to a devotee who feels drawn to him by the combined force of these three attractions. And that's another metaphor. He talks about three worldly attractions in the world, and that if you love God, if you're attracted to God that much, then you'll attain him. Imagine what they'd be. Okay, one. <clears throat> Let's see. The attraction of worldly possessions for the worldly. 
for the worldly man, well, the attraction of well, what, what the miser loves is money. He's attracted to it. You know that attraction? Uh, the child's attraction to his mother and the husband's attraction for his beloved wife. <clears throat> if one feels drawn to him by the combined force of these three attractions, then through it one can attain him. So what is it? Love for money, um, the child's love of the mother, and sexual attraction. Those three, those are powerful attractions, aren't they? So, so your love for the highest should be something like that. The point is to love God even as the mother loves her child, the wife or husband, and the worldly man, his wealth. Add together these three forces of love, these three powers of attraction, and give it all to God. Then you will certainly see him. That's a high bar, would you say? The kitten knows only how to call its mother, crying, mew, mew. <laughs> it remains satisfied wherever its mother puts it. But the mother cat puts the kitten sometimes in the kitchen, sometimes on the floor, sometimes on the bed. <clears throat> when it suffers, it cries only, mew, mew. <laughs> That's all it knows. But as soon as the mother hears his cry, wherever she may be, she comes to the kitten. What's he saying there? I think that's an alternative path. <laughs> you just cry, just cry out, mew, mew. Sucks, you come. In an exalted mood, M saluted the master and took his leave. That was the end. So let's meditate. I'll continue on with the third visit, which is really fascinating. So what do you think? You like Ramakrishna? Yeah. Amazing. At the same time that he's so sweet and soft, he's also hard as nails. He like, calls it like it is, and he's uncompromising. <clears throat> so let's turn within. And what the great yogis say is that within us, whoever you are, whatever you've done in your life, even if you've done bad things, even if you feel you're very mundane and boring and so on, whoever you are, there is this vibrant consciousness, this vibrant self within you. And by spending a little time with it, in the search for it, you can find that self. You can attain that self, and that self will start to operate, and the inner energy will start to awaken inside you, and that energy will move through you and uplift you. <clears throat> so when we meditate, we turn within and focus on our essence, who we really are. You can use any number of meditations. But a simple one is to say the mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, I bow to the self, I bow to Shiva, I bow to consciousness, I honor the self. And repeat it to yourself, and let other thoughts become quiet, let them disappear. Because in the stillness of the mind, then the self manifests. <clears throat> I'm just reading a a philosopher 
18th century Scottish philosopher named David Hume. A lot of you may have studied him at school. He's a very interesting guy. <clears throat> and he did some introspection, and he came to the conclusion there's no self. Because uh, every time he looked, he would see there was a thought or a feeling. And whenever there was no thought or feeling, he would fall asleep. So he said, there's only just thoughts and feelings. There's no essential identity. So in this life, he's a Buddhist, of course. <laughs> but the yogis have discovered that when the thoughts are quiet and the feelings are balanced, the self shines forth. And the self is not a nothing. It is a something. It is vibrant. It is full of love. It is full of joy. It is full of peace. So if we can quiet our minds, like David Hume did, um, and of course, when he fell asleep, he was actually entering meditation. And he should have gone with that, because as you go with that, even if you fall into a kind of sleep, that sleep will turn into a conscious sleep as you keep meditating, called tundra. <clears throat> and um, so let yourself go inside let the mind become quiet, let the feelings become calm, and turn towards the inner self. Repeat the mantra if you like, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. Or you could say to yourself, I am the self, I am the self, and focus on that and contemplate that, see where it takes you. So we'll meditate now for 10 minutes, and once again with great love and respect, remembering the goddess, the great goddess of the Shakti, the great goddess Kundalini, the goddess in all the forms of Lakshmi, Durga, Saraswati, and all the forms of all the, the, the mothers and the wives and the daughters, remembering that great goddess will meditate on the self. So once again, with great love I res and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart. Sat Gurnath Maharaj.